production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It is Friday, June 16th. I'm Jeff St. Clair, host and producer at IdeaStream Public Media. Today's forum is the inaugural Sadiq Forum on the Islamic World. The annual forum will celebrate leaders, thinkers, visionaries, and advocates whose work ensures the future of our democratic republic is truly inclusive and multicultural. In that spirit, we're joined this afternoon by Reza Aslan, author of An American Martyr in Persia, The Epic Life and Tragic Death of Howard Baskerville. His latest book, uh, uh, Reza tells the extraordinary journey of Howard Baskerville, a young missionary from South Dakota who studied at Princeton and in 1907 landed in the middle of a democratic revolution in Persia, which is now Iran. Uh, if the title of the book wasn't enough of a spoiler, Bas Baskerville does die <laughs> during the siege of Tabriz. He was declared an American martyr for the country. Using Baskerville's life as a touchpoint, Aslan examines the power and allure of freedom and democracy and examines how Americans view these ideals outside their own country. Reza Aslan is a renowned writer, commentator, professor, Emmy and Peabody-nominated producer and scholar of religion a recipient of the prestigious James Joyce Award. He's the author of three international bestsellers, one of which we are discussing today. Aslan is also co-founder of Boom Gem Studios, a studio and production company. It's focused on bringing stories from and about the Middle East to American audiences. His production credits include the acclaimed HBO series, The Leftovers, and the CBS comedy, United States of Owl, set in Columbus, Ohio, by the way. <laughs> He's also co-host of the podcast, Metaphysical Milkshake with Rain Wilson. If you have questions for Reza Aslan, you can text to uh, the number here. It's 330-541-5794. Okay, 330-541-5794 for text. You can also tweet your question at the City Club, and City Club staff will try to work it into the second half of the program. Uh, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join us, join me in welcoming Reza Aslan. Thank you. I just want to get started. Um, you're from Iran, you were born in Iran, your family moved here after the Islamic Revolution, but tell, tell us a little bit more you know, about your background, your life, your history. Yeah, we, we left Iran in 79, post-revolution 79, um, before the creation of the Islamic Republic and that sort of post-revolutionary chaos where I think a lot of Iranians were, um, you know, wanting to leave to figure out what was going to happen. And my father was certainly one of those people. My father uh, was um, a very anti-religious man. Uh, he was someone who never trusted anything that anyone wearing a turban had to say about any topic. And so I think when Khomeini returned to Iran, he thought to himself, let's leave for a while just to see what happens. Um, 
And of course, that was 40 something years ago and my father was right, which he reminded me about pretty much every day. Yeah. Um, we came to the US, we actually arrived in Oklahoma at first. Um, and I think that was because my father had done a semester abroad um, at a university there and he just kind of assumed Oklahoma was America, uh, which isn't wrong necessarily. Yeah. Um, but after a couple of years, uh, realizing America is actually quite larger than just Oklahoma, uh, we headed west, like so many do, and I grew up mostly in the Bay Area in the 1980s, which wasn't the best time in the world to be either uh, Iranian or Muslim in America, as opposed to now when it's fantastic. <laughs> um, and uh, this was at the height of the Iran hostage crisis, 444 days in which Americans were being held hostage uh, in the embassy in Iran. And you know, as a seven-year-old boy trying his hardest to just kind of fit in, uh, it was not easy. In fact, um, I've mentioned this a few times, but I spent a good part of the 1980s pretending to be Mexican, yeah. um, which tells you how little I understood about America. <laughs> <laughs> not, yeah, not much better, maybe? It didn't help at all. Time, yeah. It didn't help even a little bit. Yeah. Uh, years later, a friend of mine was, said, why didn't you say Italian? I was like, yeah, oh. I didn't, it didn't occur to me. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, it was, it was an interesting experience uh, being here and, and growing up Iranian and Muslim in, in the U.S. And, and really understanding the way in which identity and culture and religion, ethnicity, nationality, all these different markers in the ways that we sort of define who we are, how malleable they can be and how much they are indebted to the way that others look at you. And that's something that's always kind of infiltrated my mind. And it's a, a thing that I've always wanted to, to write about and think about and, and study. Um, I knew from a very early age that I wanted to be a writer. That was, I, I don't have a memory of ever wanting to be anything else. Um, but this may seem familiar to some people in the audience. Uh, it's very difficult as an immigrant to say to your mother, I would like to be a writer. That's not a real job. Uh, you, can, you can be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I said, well, okay, I'll go and, and study religion. I'm fascinated by religion. I'll become a professor. My mother can still introduce me as doctor. <laughs> not, it's not real, but still, you know. Um, and so that's what I did. I, I kind of began this life of studying the world's religions, the way in which faith and culture interact, um, and writing about these great religious figures, whether they be prophets or whether they be missionaries. It's always been something that's been very fascinating. By, I, I am fascinated and drawn to people who, when confronted with injustice or oppression, activate their faith to do something about it. That's the story of the Prophet Muhammad. That's the story of Jesus Christ. It's the story of Howard Baskerville. Let's, we'll, we'll talk religion in a moment, but I guess we'll first talk a little bit about politics and history. Um, that it's safe to say uh, very few Americans have ever heard of the story of Howard Baskerville. Yeah. But growing up in Iran, you, you know, he was a well-known figure. That's I right. guess before the Islamic Revolution. Did that, did that help, did that inspire you to write this book? Certainly when I grew up in Iran, 
uh, Howard Baskerville, his name was everywhere. There were schools named Howard Baskerville. There were auditoriums named Howard Baskerville. There was a street not far from where I grew up in Tehran called Howard Baskerville. His tomb is still in Tabriz, the city in which he uh, lived and died. Um, his death date, uh, April uh, 19th, um, uh, it's celebrated April 20th in, in Iran. Uh, it, it was a kind of holiday. People would travel from all over the country to visit his tomb and lay flowers. There's a museum in Tabriz that has this beautiful golden bust of him uh, and a painting of him. Baskerville's name was part of our consciousness. He really was this almost legendary American hero who gave his life for the freedom of Iranians. Now, I will say, you're absolutely right, uh, since the 79 revolution, uh, his name has been more or less erased from uh, Iranian consciousness. All the streets have been renamed, the schools have been renamed. His tomb is still there, though it's not as frequently visited as you can imagine. I told a story backstage in which I had some friends of mine visit the museum where the Baskerville wing is, and they were being uh, shown it by the, the docent, and they asked the docent to tell him to tell them a little bit about Howard Baskerville, and the docent couldn't. The docent didn't really know who Baskerville was, uh, claimed he was some kind of American military advisor. Um, this is the docent. This is the person who works at this museum. Um, so his name has really kind of disappeared, and that's by design. One quick coda to this story, real sure. quick, is that a friend of mine told me recently, my cousin told me, that there's actually a chain of very popular coffee shops uh, in Tehran called Baskerville. Baskerville Coffee. It's a good name. Uh, yes, but, uh, and it's very popular with Gen Z. But, but again, I, I can't imagine those kids who are sipping lattes there have any idea, well, any we, more so than you know, we know who Starbucks right, is. Right, right, from, know? from um, the novel. But, uh, but it's a real shame. But I will say what, what was really shocking, and to your point, is that when I came to America, no one had heard of Howard Baskerville. I just assumed that he was as lionized a figure in his home country as he was in Iran. But no, his story had been completely excised from yeah. American history. Well, you talked about people um, inspired by uh, higher ideals. I'm not sure that Baskerville went to Persia at that time, when it was called his, in 1907, uh, knowing that he would become a martyr for that country. Oh. Tell us a little bit about how uh, you know, he landed in this incredible uh, time in the history of, of Persia and Iran, where um, you know, he ended up joining yeah. this, this revolution. Well, he's a 22-year-old Christian missionary uh, born in Nebraska, raised in South Dakota, and he graduates from Princeton with a degree in Christian ministry. He's supposed to go back to South Dakota and follow in the footsteps of his father and his grandfather and his uncle and his older brother, all of whom are Presbyterian ministers. But he, you know, he wants this sort of grand adventure first, and so he decides to apply to become a missionary. He desperately does not want to go to Persia, 
Um, he, he wants to go to China and Japan because he's read all these wonderful things about how great everything is there. Meanwhile, he's reading these dispatches from missionaries in Persia, basically calling it the worst place on earth. Um, my favorite is a, a quote from a, a missionary named Justin Perkins who says that all the sins of the Decalogue are ever present in Persia. And so this 22-year-old kid, this is the last place he wants to go. Of course, he gets assigned to Persia. Um, so he goes there kind of kicking and screaming. That just does not want to have anything to do with the country or its people. And this kind of beautiful moment, he arrives and almost instantly realizes that everything that he had heard was a lie. He he falls in love with absolutely the falls in love with the country, the culture, the people, the food. Obviously, um, I mean it is the best cuisine in the world. I think we all we all can agree on that. Yeah. Um, and uh, he he be instantly becomes the most popular teacher at the at this missionary school where he's teaching. Partly that has to do with the fact that he is by far the youngest teacher there, but still, um, and. He has this, this grand adventure that he had always dreamed of. And meanwhile, as you rightly say, he, unbeknownst to him, shows up in the middle of this revolution, the very first democratic revolution in the Middle East, a revolution that had begun five, I'm sorry, two years earlier in 1905, um, a revolution the purpose of which was to create a constitution, a progressive document that laid out the rights and privileges of all Iranians. Um, and to elect a parliament, uh, uh, to have a legislative body that would have the ability not only to, to pass laws, but much more importantly, to um, curb the unchecked authority of the Shah, the king of, of uh, Iran. And that, those things happened in 1906, end of 1906, beginning of 1907. Iran ratified a constitution. It's an incredibly progressive document, um, and had its first election for a legislature. It, just to kind of fast forward on the story very quickly, because it doesn't end there, uh, the Shah who signed that constitution and allowed for the legislature died three days later, and was replaced by his 37-year-old uh, son, a man by the uh, name of Muhammad Ali. Um, not that Muhammad Ali, obviously. Um, <laughs> But, uh, and this guy, you know, not a good guy. <laughs> We've had some miserable, miserable people on that throne, and this is kind of one of the, the, the top. Um, he immediately launches a war against the revolutionaries, tears up the Constitution, rolls his Russian uh, cannons to the House of Parliament and destroys it with the parliamentarians still inside. Uh, in fact, it was in the middle of a session. Yeah. And, uh, and then begins this war where he uses his Russian-trained troops to take back the country for the crown, every city, every province, except for one. <laughs> this one small city in the northwest called Tabriz, and that is the city that Howard Baskerville suddenly arrives in in the midst of this entire sort of historic, historical moment. Yeah, let's let's take it up to, I mean, the title is The Martyr, so I think the, the key, the climactic mo moment of the book really is 
um, the siege of Tabriz, yeah. where the uh, the parliamentary forces are are being starved out by the the Russian uh, backed uh, Shah's army yeah. surrounding this city for months and months and months. months. They're starving. They're eating grass and stuff. Um, this young American uh, is placed in charge of these like sixteen year old freedom fighters. <laughs> yeah. Take us up to that moment of, of you know, what inspired Iranians to remember Howard Baskerville. Well, he'd been there for about a year and a half, and during that year and a half, he was told repeatedly by the church that had sent him there, by the missionary uh, program that w was employing him at the school, by the U.S. government that controlled him, that whatever was happening around him was none of his business, that he was there to save souls, not lives. Um, that he was supposed to teach his classes, put his head down, and have nothing to do with this revolution that was taking place around him. Um, and this was very difficult for him. And he tried his best, like I said, put his head down and taught, but he couldn't help but be drawn in to this conflict. And when the siege of Tabriz happens, when he is literally walking over corpses in order to get to class, um, something just breaks within him. And he eventually stands before his classroom and he says, I can't do this anymore. I cannot ignore the suffering on the streets and come here and teach you and pretend that everything is okay. It's not okay. The only, the only way that I know how to serve this country and the people that I've come to love is to quit my teaching job, to abandon my missionary post, and to pick up a gun and to go join the fight against the Shah. And as you rightly say, in this kind of made-for-Hollywood moment, mm -hmm. his students stand up and follow him into the battlefield, um, which is not good for the school. No. That's, that's a very bad thing. Um, and so they try very hard to talk him out of this, um, but he's, he's resolute. He truly believes that it is his obligation as an American and most importantly, as a Christian, to do something about the suffering that is that he is facing um, and to fight back against it, to put an end to this suffering. There's a sort of beautiful moment where the US government sends the consul general, the US consul general onto the battlefield to talk some sense into this now 24-year-old kid. Um, and the consul general says to him, you can't do this, this is not, your country, these are not your people, this is not your fight. It's time for you to get on a ship and get back home right now or we'll have no choice but to arrest you for treason, for going against American interests in the region. And Baskerville quite famously um, sweeps his eyes across the battlefield, these people who, are, who have come from all over the world to fight in this fight for freedom. And he says, the only difference between me and these people is the place of my birth. And that is a very small difference. And then he pulls out his passport and hands it over. At the end, as you rightly say, um, they decide that they have to try to break this siege. There's no more food in the city. People are, are dying um, by the dozens every day. And so he and his students uh, make a fairly foolhardy, some would say even suicidal attempt to break through the siege in, in an early morning on April 20th. Um, and they don't get very far. Um, Baskerville gets shot in the heart. But the international uh, 
sort of news that comes from that, the, the story of an American who was killed fighting for the freedom of these Iranians is so huge and so embarrassing, not to the Shah, the Shah couldn't care less, but it's so embarrassing to the Russians and the British who were supporting the Shah that they ultimately forced the Shah to declare a ceasefire, to allow um, humanitarian uh, assistance into the city. The revolutionaries very smartly take advantage of the ceasefire to march on Tehran and to bring the Shah down from his throne, reestablish the, the constitution, rebuild the parliament, and the very first act of the new parliament is to declare this 24-year-old Christian missionary from the Black Hills of South Dakota to be a martyr and a hero um, for Iran. And for a hundred and something years, that's what he has been. Yeah, it is interesting um, that uh, his sacrifice, uh, essentially, even though he was killed and lost that, that skirmish, uh, did lead to the lifting of the siege. It did. And the, the revolution at that time would have died out. They were, they were losing, they were starving but it gave them new life and they ended up establishing a, a constitutional government that lasted a few years um, until World War I, which you know, uh, there were problems. But it, it brings us to the, the bigger question of um, American ideals of democracy versus the, the practice. Right. You know, the government at the time said, no, we are, you know, we're backing our colonial powers. You know, we're not gonna get in a tiff with Britain and Russia over this. We're not going to, you know, get in the way of that. Uh, decades later, 1953, America backed a coup of, of the democratically elected go uh, government installed, reinstalled the Shah, that sort of thing. This is part of what you're talking about yeah. is the, um, and maybe let discuss this a little bit further of, of what the meaning of this story is for you. Well, it's interesting, you know, during the 1905 revolution, the, the constitutional revolution that basketball fought in, I think the Iranians, what they understood about America was that this was a country that had fought for its own independence from a you know, villainous dictator. And they couldn't understand why America would not support that in Iran. They just assumed that they would. Um, and they were told in no uncertain terms that America wanted nothing to do with this conflict, not because America had some vested interest in Iran. This was 1907. To be perfectly frank, I don't know if anybody in the State Department could have found Iran on a map. Um, we didn't care yet. We didn't care yet. You're absolutely right. We certainly didn't want to get in the way of, of Russia and, and, the, and Britain. If Russia and Britain were on the side of the Shah, well, they must have a point. Um, but the State Department issued a memo essentially saying that America cannot have any interest in supporting the revolutionaries in this conflict. Not, again, not for any sort of economic or national security interest, but because, as this memo laid out, the idea, the notion that a democracy could actually arise in a Muslim-majority country was so absurd was so beyond the pale that no American could possibly support it. And so for that reason, not for any interest, but just because it was dumb, uh, there was no way that an, any American uh, could support this, this conflict. And that is an idea that I think is still very much present uh, in the way that the, the US government 
sees not just the Middle East, not just Muslim-majority countries, but much of the world. Right, and there's, here's where we get back to religion, where the politics and the religion definitely overlap, and especially in modern-day Iran. It's, um, you know, uh, I guess a theocracy, or what, I don't even know, you know, an uh, Islamic republic, uh, yeah. um, which the, our current relations with Iran are, you know, not <laughs> yes. very good. No, I mean, not we're, very We're concerned good. about the, uh, the nuclear program. We're concerned about their uh, influence on other Middle Eastern countries, or in Iraq and, and Israel and so on. Um, and then recently, the um, sort of the, the feminist, uh, you know, uprising or whatever's going on in response to the killing of uh, Mira um, Amini. Masa. Masa Amini. So in, in this context, now we have a, bit, a better historical understanding maybe of America's perspective on Iran. How, how does that, I don't know, perception that Islam and freedom mm. are incompatible? How does that influence where we are moving forward? I think it's still a very much a prevailing sentiment in the State Department, regardless of who's president or what the political winds have to say. I think that we have had in this country, in the United States, a uh, many centuries in which we have defined ourselves, which is an extraordinarily difficult thing to do in, in a country made up of immigrants, we have defined ourselves primarily in opposition to others. It's very difficult to say what it means to be American, but it's pretty easy to say what it isn't. It's that we're not those guys. We're not these guys. Um, and so it has allowed us to, I think, have this elevated sense of self, an elevated sense of our own democracy and of the stability of our democracy, which if there's anything good to have come from the last five years or so, it is that, that it has shattered that sense of self, that we now understand, oh, no, 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 it, this is not nearly as stable as we think it is, um, that it could go away like that. You're talking about American-style I'm talking about American democracy. democracy, that's right. I'm talking about Amer democracy in this country, um, that it's an extraordinarily fragile, um, and that, uh, when it comes to sort of you know those standards that we uh, ascribe to ourselves, that our commitment to them here in the U.S. turns out not to be as strong as we all assumed it was. Let alone our commitment to spreading these things to other parts of the world. Um, and I think that that is a message that was always resonant in large parts of the Middle East, but is as, as clear as it's ever been nowadays. Um, and I think that, you know, when you look at the, the conflict um, in Iran, certainly the uprising that has been, that is still very much going on right now, you really can draw a straight line from it to the 1905 revolution. This was the revolution that Howard Baskerville took part in really set the stage for creating what I think most global observers would say is the most robust political culture, certainly in the Middle East, if not in, in the world. Um, this is a population that has undergone three major revolutions, major earth-shattering revolutions, and countless, countless uprisings, strikes, uh, protests, um, 
you know, obviously we're, we're very concerned about what's happening in Iran and what, ever since the, the death of Masa Amini, but a few, six months before that death, there were mass uprisings uh, across Iran uh, that had to do with the crumbling economy. So uh, again, I think we, from the outside, see Iran as this sort of monolithic place where there is this autocratic regime that is absolutely dominating the lives of all Iranians. And that is partly true, but it does, I think, mask the enormous complexities, the complexities of political thought, the complexities of religious thought that exist in Iran. Um, and that, God willing, will one day give the Iranian people the freedom that they have been fighting for more than a century for. We're going to go to questions in just a few minutes. but. I kind of like to wrap up this part of the discussion and looking for maybe a solution. Uh, the, the journalists that are in prison now in Iran, the, the activists who have been executed for the protests, are accused of being influenced by outside forces. They're still you know, saying yeah. that American uh, agents or whatever are fomenting the unrest in Iran. Um, what could, can we do? What, what should maybe uh, American policymakers or, or thinkers or you know, people who are reading this book, how can we envision uh, um, a stance in America, perhaps, that would benefit the people of Iran? What, you know, what could we do? It's difficult. You know, four and a half decades of mutual animosity and distrust are not going to be um, resolved very easily. Um, one can make an argument that America probably doesn't really have a role to play in Iran. But there are countries that do. Um, uh, there are a number of European countries that have maintained not just interdependent trade relationships with Iran, but open lines of communication. And we have great relationships with those countries. And so I think that a direct American role in Iran at this stage can't do any good honestly, for anyone. But working with our allies in the UN and in the European Union to make sure that there is a mechanism to punish Iran for its poor behavior, but also a mechanism to reward it for behavior that actually does promote the, the freedom and the loosening of restrictions um, on its people, that that is how we've always managed to change the behavior of countries that we don't agree with, right? The way, the way that the United States has managed to maintain relationships with countries that it doesn't have uh, similar interests with is through the carrot and stick approach. Mm -hmm. But we have no carrot in Iran. We have never had a carrot in Iran. All we have had for four and a half decades is a stick that just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And when that is the policy that you have towards a country, doesn't matter what country, country it is, um, you have very limited resources, very limited avenues for actually affecting any kind of behavior from that country. So I think for me, the real key to influencing Iran is working through the international community. That is what President Obama did with the historic uh, P5 plus one nuclear agreement got the world to actually agree on a path forward to getting rid of Iran's nuclear weapons capabilities and possibly even opening up that country to the rest of the world, allowing the people to have 
that connection that they need in order to actually be empowered to change their own government, to change their own countries. But obviously, we have stepped away from that uh, possibility now and are trying to figure out ways to, to recreate it in some meaningful way. But um, again, I, I don't think that bilateral relations of any kind between Iran and the United States are anywhere on the horizon, not, over, not because of the last four and a half decades. Yeah. I have many more questions uh, on sort of that line, um, but I think we need to open it up to the audience and to our listeners um, who are can text. Again, let me uh, give that number. Uh, I, and we, I, I'm Jeff St. Clair, just to reintroduce myself at, from IdeaStream Public Media. And uh, we are talking to uh, Reza Aslan, author of An American Martyr in Persia. It's the inaugural Sadiq Forum on the Islamic world here at the Cleveland City Club. And we wel welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those joining uh, our live stream uh, at cityclub.org. Um, if you'd like to tweet a question right now, you can tweet at the City Club. You can also text it, 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And uh, we'll make sure your question uh, gets taken. So we are ready for our first question. I'm the first one? You are. <laughs> Always. Uh, I'm Mr. Malik. Um, so we've come a long way from the 10 years ago interview with Lauren Green and you explaining why you wrote a book about Jesus. So <laughs> thank you for doing that. I appreciate it. Um, so my question, I know you mentioned something about Islamophobia and, you know, almost eradicated from the world. And so kidding aside, but what can we do as Muslims in America to help with that eradication and take it mm. to that, you know, the next level? That's a very good question. It, it, look, in some ways it goes back to what I was saying before about the malleability of the American identity. Um, we have always in our history um, defined what it means to be American by finding some other within us to define ourselves against. At the dawn of the 20th century, it was mainstream political rhetoric to say that you could not be Catholic and American at the same time. You cannot possibly have allegiance to both the Pope and the President. Um, that was standard conversation, political conversation. We had an entire political party in the United States. We passed laws in the United States to curb uh, Catholic migration into this country, um, but of course, after many, many decades, Catholics are as much a part of the American uh, religious and, and cultural fabric as, as you can imagine. Um, we had a very similar conversation about Jews in, in mid-century, um, that you know, being Jewish meant that your allegiances were um, subject to questioning that you couldn't truly be uh, American. We, we've always found someone within to uh, define ourselves against. And it's no you know, secret that over the last couple of decades that someone has been Muslims. Um, we are only about 2% of the population of the United States, very small percentage, um, but we're an active uh, population. Uh, we have 
as an immigrant community, the highest levels of literacy and education of any immigrant community in the United States. Um, and, and I hesitate to say this because it's somewhat gauche, we are absurdly wealthy. The median household income for a Muslim household in America dwarfs the median household income for a non-Muslim household. Um, the advertising giant JWT last decade said that the disposable income for the Muslim and Middle Eastern community in the United States is almost $2 billion a year. I say that because, if you're familiar enough with how this country works, money matters, right? <laughs> money matters. Money is voice, apparently, now, according to the Supreme Court. Um, and so I do think that to your question of what do we do, how do we do it, it's twofold. Number one, we do need to be smarter about the way that we use our money slash voice, for better or worse, they're the same, um, in order to promote the ideals of our community to make sure that the values that we hold deal, which are, are dear, which are very much uh, the same as the values of the United States, are promoted in our politics, be they on the national stage or on the local stage, and conversely, that we punish those in the political community, in the business community, who uh, denigrate and dehumanize others uh, because of the color of their skin, because of how they worship, etc. We have the ability to do that, we should do that. But secondly and more importantly, when I think about the way in which Catholics and Jews overcame that sort of marginalization that they underwent, they did so by focusing on, on marginalized communities outside of their own. You know, when you think about who was at the forefront of uh, the anti-war movement, it was Jews. Who was at the forefront of the civil rights movement standing hand in hand with black Americans who were demanding their most basic rights? Jews. Who were part of the, the, the sort of the groundswell of support for the, the women's movement, for the LGBTQ movement? We have to learn as Muslims that the most effective way to integrate into what it means to be American is to stop thinking about ourselves and our problems and our marginalization and our oppression and focus on everybody else's. And we have the means and the ability to do so, but until we learn to take everyone else's cause as our own, we'll always have that sort of patina of otherness. In this country, the way that you become American is by fighting for other Americans. Wow, interesting. Another question? Salam, Dr. Aslan. Salam. My name's Sammy. Uh, so I wrote up my question. Uh, in these sorts of forums, we can talk geopolitics until the cows come home. But uh, given your training as a sociologist of religion, I'm wondering if you could instead comment on the fact that, uh, on one hand, the Iranian people are inheritors of the Persian spiritual tradition, which is arguably the pinnacle of Islamic um, uh, heritage. 
And on the other hand, the tyranny that they face is in the name of a fundamentalist brand of that same religion. And as a result, you see the increasing abandonment of the Muslim faith, and you have um, you know, Iranian converts to Christianity named Muhammad. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm wondering what significance that deracination has on um, the Iranian nation and more broadly on the uh, Muslim ummah as a whole in your, yeah, in your mind. Yeah, that's a great question. I think on the one hand, it's not that complicated. You know, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, when the Shah was um, implementing an aggressive secularization program on Iran, a program in which uh, you couldn't wear the veil in public forms, in which you, uh, in which you know, men with beards were being forcibly shaved on the streets. Um, the opposition to the Shah became Islamic opposition. It became religious opposition. You suppress religion. Guess what happens? Religion exerts itself in a very muscular form, and in this case, ultimately brought the Shah down. But the flip side is also true. <laughs> You're in a situation now in which religion in a particularly uh, oppressive, uh, draconian version of religion is forced upon the population. Guess what happens? It's not complicated. If you're a parent, you know what happens at this point. Well, your father, for example. My father's a great example of this. So I it, it is important. I'm glad that you asked this question because I think people don't understand how un-Islamic the population of Iran is, particularly young Iranians who have absolutely no interest in religion at all. It is a deeply irreligious population. But of course it is. Of course it is. They are being fed this absolutely hypocritical version of religion. Um, it is political autocracy in the name of religion. Um, and so they're turning away from it. By the way, this is partly why there is this, it's not really talked about that much outside of Iran, but there is this kind of backlash to uh, religious control, the Islamic Republic, that's happening in the seminaries amongst the younger clerics um, who are openly questioning the, the very sort of legitimacy of the Islamic Republic, let alone the value of it. And even those who may, uh, may sort of not necessarily disagree with the theology behind it recognize how destructive it has been in creating an entire generation of Iranians who want absolutely nothing to do with Islam at all, want nothing to do with religion. Um, so, you know, it, will those conversations eventually erode uh, clerical control? I hope so. Um, but I do think that it shouldn't come as a surprise to find out how absolutely irreligious the population in Iran actually is. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, my question is uh, basically, uh, first of all, let me say this, that you have enlightened us about the historical background of the people of Iran who went through many, many uh, difficult periods. Similarly, today, we see in Pakistan, same thing is happening. And what is your opinion about what might happen down the road? 
Thank you. Maybe repeat the, repeat the question. Well, the question is, you know, in a lot of ways, the conversation that we've been having about Iran, we could have about Pakistan as well. Um, Pakistan also, you know, from its very beginning, had this problem. When you call yourself an Islamic Republic, you then have to define what you mean by Islamic. This is a conversation that we're having here in the United States, right? A third of us, that's more than 100 million of us, are self-described Christian nationalists. We believe that America should be a Christian nation. Until you start saying, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a Christian nation? What does it mean to be an Islamic Republic? Well, on the one hand, it means that the laws and the mores of the country are steeped in traditional Islam. But even then, you have to stop and say, well, what does that mean? What is traditional Islam? This is a 1,400-year religion that comes in a thousand varieties, you know, that, uh, that we don't have any, anything like a Muslim pope that gets to decide what is and what is not proper Islamic behavior, who, in, who is and who is not, you know, a Muslim. Um, so, again, what we're seeing in Pakistan over these, you know, decades is fundamentally an attempt to define and reconcile the sort of original idea that gave birth to the country in the first place. Does it mean that it's a Muslim-majority country? Is that all it means? Does it mean that the laws have to be vetted by some you know, sort of monolithic uh, conception of what Islamic behavior is supposed to be? Nobody knows. Um, this is, I think, the problem when you start to mix religion and nationalism, is that religion is infinitely malleable. Religion is almost by definition whatever a religious person says it is. Um, you know, uh, Ted Kaczynski is as much a Christian as Martin Luther King is a Christian. They have almost nothing in common with each other, but each one of them would call themselves Christian. And how do we sort of reconcile that? How do we deal with that? Um, I, I think that the one thing that I feel somewhat uh, optimistic about when it comes to Pakistan is that it has had many, many years of a deep experience with popular sovereignty and with political participation. And yes, it is true that in each one of those iterations, the military has been the dominant force regardless of who's in charge. But what that has created is a young, globalized, educated population that has certain expectations that its voice will actually matter and will not give up that expectation. Um, and if there is any kind of hope for what the future of Pakistan uh, can be, it really rests within that young generation. Another question? I do. Uh, thanks for being here. Um, so as an immigrant coming here as a young kid, it was, was seen as a land of opportunity, the democratic nation to go and try new things. You've talked about how a martyr helped a democratic movement and allowed that process to occur. Um, You've also shared about using our money and our voice here in this nation to help make change, positive change that we think that we need to see. 
Um, but what we're seeing right now in the political climate is laws around anti-BDS movements. So you're not allowed to use your money or your voice to go counter things. We're seeing a lack of educational funding. We're seeing things like alternative facts and people questioning what the actual mm -hmm. truth is, no matter how much uh, actual data is available to talk about it. Knowing all of this in the current climate and your knowledge of world democracies and rises and falls, what can we as Americans do now to try to save our democracy, especially as some of us or many of us might see it crumbling around us? Yeah. And if we don't act, there's a high risk that this nation that's lasted for so long might not be in the same state. There's no question that we are in a moment of existential crisis in the United States. And I would say it's even far, far worse than we give ourselves the uh, freedom to think about. Um, and I think that we are on a precipice. There's no question about it. I mean, these next couple of years are going to be pivotal in deciding whether this very brief experiment in democracy is actually going to work or not. That said, I do think it's important to understand how we got here and why we are here. I've said this now, I think, two or three times. America is unique in the sense that as a nation of immigrants, we cannot define our identity based on any kind of homogeneity, the way that you can in much of the world, right? We don't all speak the same language. We don't all have the same ethnicity. We don't all have the same culture. Um, we come from different places, different worlds, different identities. And I think that in many ways that is part of the strength of what this country has become. At the same time, that diversity, which is becoming greater and greater every day, demographers tell us we are a decade, maybe a little bit more, from becoming the first nation on earth to be majority minorities. That's extraordinary. I, I think sometimes, even if you've heard that sentence before, I want you to think about it for a minute. The first nation on earth to be majority minorities is amazing. If you want to know how crazy that fact is, take a moment and try to think of what the second nation would be, which is the second. I mean, we, it's hard to say. That's how extraordinary it is. But at the same time, you can understand how threatening that fact is to people who have had the experience of majority forever and who have just assumed that this is what it will always be. They feel as though the privilege that they have taken advantage of that has been part of their everyday experience for as long as they can remember is being taken away from them. They believe that diversity and equity and and uh, 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 you know, um, equality are zero-sum games. That if you get extra rights, then those rights must come away from me somehow. That I must be giving up my rights in order to give you more rights, which is absurd on its face. Even as I say it, you know how absurd it is. And yet, this is a very real belief amongst uh, you know, the, this population. In those moments, what we always see, whether here it's in the United States or elsewhere, is a kind of snapback. 
we see a moment in which when the majority is being confronted by the fact that they will soon no longer be the majority, what do they do? They react sometimes in violent ways, in extreme ways, in order to maintain what they believe is an existential issue. So from the very narrow point of history where we stand right now, I don't want to deny the fact that we are in trouble, but expand your point of view just for a moment. Look at this moment in time from a historical lens, and what you see is what it actually is, the death of a white supremacist movement, the last gasps of it, the last attempt to use any mechanism available to it, and because of the system that we live in, there are some mechanisms in order to maintain that control for as long as possible, knowing that it's over. It's over. This is not the country of their grandparents any longer. There's no making America great again. There is no going backward. It's done. What is about to happen in 10, 12, 15 years is going to happen and there's nothing you can do to stop it. So I'm not saying don't be afraid. Be very afraid. <laughs> but broaden your perspective a little bit, and you'll see that what you are actually witnessing right now is the inevitable progression of American society. This was in the seeds that created this thing in the first place. It's just taken 250 years for it to fully sprout. So let's wrap things up. Dan Walther. The, the last question comes from, uh, from a listener via text and brings us back to Baskerville. Baskerville's story sounds like it could be a Hollywood movie. Considering your experience with film and production, should it be? And <laughs> is, our, uh, is our society ready for it? Yes, I think so. I think the story of a, of a young, idealistic American who is, who's challenged whose identity is challenged, whose sense of self is challenged, whose idea of America is challenged, and who, given the opportunity to take advantage of his privilege and go home and be safe, gives up all of his privilege and says, the suffering of any one person anywhere in the world is the responsibility of all peoples everywhere in the world, and then is willing to die for it. That's a message that we need today more than ever. We need some Baskerville coffee shops over here, <laughs> yeah. I would say. Well, we've talked uh, religion and politics. We didn't get to money, but we've hit the two of the big three. Uh, thank you all so much, and especially thank you, Professor Reza Aslan. This was the inaugural Sadiq Forum on the Islamic World, uh, made possible with support from the Sadiq family. Thank you so much. It's also part of the City Club's Authors and Conversation Series in partnership with Cuyahoga Arts and Culture and the Cuyahoga County Public Library. Thank you to our partners. Next Tuesday, June 20th, you can catch the City Club back in Public Square. Uh, Amy Eddings with Ideastream Public Media will lead a conversation with representatives from the city 
Greater Cleveland Partnership in downtown Cleveland to discuss our urban core as a thriving neighborhood. On Friday, June 23rd, Sam Zarifi, Executive Director of Physicians for Human Rights, will join the City Club for a discussion about the organization's work on reproductive rights, Ukraine, and more. You can learn about these forums online at cityclub.org. That brings us to the end of the forum. Let me find my gavel here. Thank you once again to Reza Aslan and all of you here. This is WKSU Ideastream Public Media. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.